I wonder what it's like in heaven for the angels right now as they bow down and worship the king and the train of his throne fills the temple. I wonder what that's like. I wonder what it would be like for us to approach this text knowing that we have been brought to the same place that the angels have been brought this morning by faith through Christ. That's where we are. We've been brought to the throne room of God through Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to open up his word and seek to find the resurrected king. I'll invite you to pray with me and ask him to join us and send his spirit in a good way. Before there was anything, you were, and you were three in one. Father, you were delighting in the Son. Son, you were delighting in the Father, experiencing intimate fellowship by your Spirit. Three persons before time began. The Father delighted in sending the Son and sent the Son to creation so that you might, Father, reconcile us back into fellowship with you. Thank you for including us in fellowship with the Godhead. Father, I pray that as we look at this text that includes creation, we might see how Jesus reconciles us to the Father so we can enjoy you. Spirit, please work. We love you, and we look to you, and we pray in your name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, you, the church, Parkview Church, and uh, the elders were super kind to me. For uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, that's a thing, I'm thankful for it, Uh, you got me a gift certificate to my favorite sauna, Jeju Sauna in Duluth, and you know me, I like to get rowdy in saunas, and so uh, it was a really good time, I like to enjoy the sauna, I like to enjoy the uh, jacuzzi, and so I was sitting there in the jacuzzi, and yes, you guessed it, I got into this great conversation. As with this young man, um... He was wearing a a silver chain around his neck, and from the chain, it had a cross hanging from it. I didn't want to ruin his zen, because he was really, looked like he was resting, but I couldn't help myself, and so I bent over and asked him the question. I said, hey man, um, I just want to know, is that cross around your neck for, uh, for style, or is it for faith? And he said, um, well, style, really, but kind of my faith, and, um, I asked him, I said, hey, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I guess you could say I'm a Christian. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. Can you tell me what that means to you? And he said, well, I was born into a Christian family. My mom and dad believe. And uh, we end up going to church our whole entire life. But um, I haven't been to church in a while. And I said, oh, okay. Has there been a, a time or season in your life where you feel like you actually made your faith your own? Like, was there a time or season in your life where it became real and you owned it. Instead of it being a religious marker for you or the family, he ever took it seriously enough where you laid down your entire life for the sake of how all-consuming it is? And he paused for a second. I really appreciated it. He thought about it. And then he said, you know what? Uh, No, I never owned my faith um, for myself. And I said, okay, can I ask you, what's keeping you from doing that? Um, what would it take for you to surrender your life to, to God and live for him? And he said, to be honest, I'd probably have to hit rock bottom. And uh, that struck me because um, what he was really saying to me was that in order for him to give up his life and surrender to God, that he would be have to be brought to a place of desperation. And so I said, okay, so, so you would be need, 
need to be brought to a place where you actually needed God. And he said, well, we all need God. And I said, um, well, actually, uh, gently I say, uh, you don't. And he said, um, what? And I said, well, well, based on what you just told me, um, in order for you to surrender your life to God, you would be brought, need to be brought to a place of desperation, a.k.a. need him. And right now your life is pretty self-sufficient, and so you haven't done that. And he said, I, I, think, I think you're right. And um, so I tried to take the conversation down the pathway of sin to help him understand that he actually needed God now and wouldn't have to wait till a death sentence or a really hard thing to come to his life, but rather as a depraved being, he needed God right there in the jacuzzi. I know that's kind of funny. I didn't mean for that to be, but I really mean that, you know? Um, and so um, I'm not sure if he actually got it, I tried to make the conversation click to show him that he actually needed God because he was a sinner. And um, I, don't, I don't think it got his attention. But so the conversation was closed and I said, hey man, I just want to let you know God loves you just as you are. He wants to forgive you just as you are. You need not do anything. I pray that God would not allow catastrophe to come to your life or a death sentence for you to surrender your life to him. He loves you. And he said, thanks so much. And please pray for me. And I said, okay. And the conversation was over. Um, this morning, I'd like to talk to you about uh, the reality of death, and some of you might think to yourself, wow, that seems like a really big jump from that conversation to this, but here's why I do that. Because uh, death is actually the ultimate rock bottom, and the reality is that it's coming for everybody. Some might die today, some might die in a year, 10 years, 20, 50, 60, but death is the worst consequence and ultimate dilemma of a fallen life. So what I want to do for us this morning is not just talk about death, which indeed we will, but also what I want to do is attempt to show us what I was seeking to show this young man, which is the fact that we should not have to wait to hit rock bottom or be given a death sentence to be able to recognize our need for God. Death certainly helps with this, it reminds us that we aren't invisible, that we all indeed will stand one day before the Creator. But now, even before we face Him, as we face the condition of this world and our own hearts, we come to the realization that we need God because of our sin. And I say that this is a message of grace because the Bible gives a gracious warning that God is a holy God, that in front of Him, he can have no sin, and he judges it. And so it's a grace warning that there is a judge. The fallen condition factor of our lives and this world is that there is so. But I can't stop here this morning because if I stopped here this morning, that would be no good news at all. I'm going to move us further, hopefully by, by God's grace, to show us how God, even in our fallen condition, longs to extend to us mercy. How God does not delight in showing judgment, but rather delights in extending mercy. How he's eager to forgive. How he longs to forgive. How he pursues sinners. How he longs to give Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the reason why God sent his son to save a rebel heart and to reconcile a broken and rebellious world. And so this morning, I want to show you that even as we face the reality of sin and death, which is all coming for us, 
that the Christian who places their faith in the risen Savior does not have to face death with fear, hesitancy, or doubt, but can stand before God's throne with confidence because of the love which he has given to his creation through his crucified and resurrected son. If you have a Bible or cell phone, please feel free to turn that on or open. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you're following along, I'd like to show you uh, the title of this sermon, which is The Reality of Sin and Death, and more importantly, The Grace and Promise of God. From these two chapters, I plan to outline our, our time together and show you three things. Number one, our rebellion. Number two, God's judgment. And number three, Christ, the Savior. Um, I know that these sound um, like they gravitate towards bigotry. Um, I am not a bigot. I want to be as gentle as possible. I just want to open up the Bible and be faithful to what it says. And my, my goal this morning is to rest you assured that there is salvation free in Jesus. Hang in there with me. That's where we're going to end, okay? We're moving now to point number one, and I'd like to show you our rebellion. This, this week, we're jumping back into our sermon series. Um, for the past few weeks, outside of last week, we have been uh, journeying through the story in Exodus, which has taken place in Egypt, and the major characters in the story thus far have been God, his people Israel, and Pharaoh, who during this time was the king of the nation. God's people um, up until this point have been living under Pharaoh, Pharaoh has made them suffer with heavy and, and, and hard and intense burdens. It hasn't been a pretty picture for the Israelites. And uh, before all of this suffering took place, what happened was that God called this man named Moses to be the leader and mediator between him, his people, and the king. And so uh, this is what Moses has been doing for the past six chapters. In chapters 5 through 10, Moses has been speaking to Pharaoh on behalf of God for his people and telling him to let the people of Israel go. And uh, if you recall the story, Pharaoh hasn't been that compliant. Uh, two weeks ago, we read through the, nine, the first nine plagues, which God sent to get Pharaoh's attention. The plague narrative described for us the cosmic battle between heaven and earth being the, between the one true God and the false God, the self-proclaimed God. And that story served us in two ways. It showed us the power of God to save, and also it showed us to what is the great extent that the God of heaven was willing to go to rescue and redeem his people. God, before all this happened, when he chose Israel, said that they would be a blessed nation. God chose Israel freely, he gave them his love and affection freely, apart from them doing anything. And when he chose them, he gave to them a promise. And the promise was that one day they would become a great nation, a great people, would be freed and brought into a promised land. And so for the first nine plagues of the Exodus narrative, this is what God has been doing. Been fighting on behalf of his people to fulfill the promise, apart from anything they've done. He's been sheltering them to keep his word. And uh, Pharaoh, I mentioned, has not only been compliant, but to put it bluntly, uh, Pharaoh in this story has been rebellious. If you remember, the pattern that we examined through chapters 5 through 10 has been this. Warning comes from God 
through Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses to listen. Judgment hits Pharaoh and his kingdom. After judgment hits Pharaoh and his kingdom, Pharaoh humbles himself, asks for mercy. God is merciful to Pharaoh, relents on judging him, and and frees him up. And as soon as Pharaoh gets freed by mercy, what does he do? If you remember, he hardens his heart. Nine plagues have struck so far in this story. Every time a plague struck, Pharaoh knew that God was at hand. If Pharaoh doesn't let Israel go here, Israel's in trouble. But as chapter 11 begins, God assures Moses that everything is going to be okay. That nothing so far in the story, even Pharaoh's very own hard heart, has been out of his control but actually in submission to his divine plan for salvation. That's verses one through three. Then if you look there in verses four through 10, Pharaoh, for the last time, is brought a final warning of the last plague, the last blow. What is the last blow of the plague story? It's death. Death is the final plague in the story, and, and my brothers and sisters, death is about to come. I'm going to read the story with you. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. So Moses said to Pharaoh this, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I'm going to go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Israel shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. In other words, God is saying to Pharaoh, um, I just am trying to get your attention. I just want to let you know that, that death is coming for you. And I'm not just telling you vaguely, I'm telling you specifically at what day and at what time, buddy, you still have a chance. You can turn right now, Pharaoh, and obey me, and I will spare your life. And when some people approach the Old Testament and view the God of the Old Testament, the, the quick interpretation, the gut or knee-jerk reaction is to think that God is a hot, fiery, impatient um, God who's ready to extend wrath at any given moment, but, but I just want to let you know that from what we read two weeks ago, that, that is not true. God has been gracious to Pharaoh. Nine times he came to him over and over again, extended to him mercy. This death prediction here in this text is actually the same exact death prediction that comes in chapter 4, verse 22. If you go through with this, Pharaoh, death is coming to you. God said that to him in chapter 4 before any plagues came. In other words, he didn't have to face any plagues at all. God does not want evil Pharaoh to perish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Listen to this. God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. The Israelites in this story, once we get to chapter five, grow impatient and think that God is delaying on his promise to save. What is he doing? He 
being patient with Pharaoh and wishing that the nation of Egypt would not perish. That's what he's doing. He's giving them a chance. If Pharaoh would have just listened, his family, himself, and his nation would have been spared. But instead of listening to the nine catastrophic events that sovereignly come into his life, and now here, as he faces the death sentence, look what the text says after hearing Moses' word. Chapter 11, verse 10. And he, Pharaoh, did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. My brothers and sisters, the end has drawn near. Every time God in the story said he was going to do something, he, he did it. And now, even in the face of death, Pharaoh says, screw that. One of my favorite rappers, his name is Charlene. He illustrates this point beautifully in one of his songs. He, um, he writes this song about a man who's laying on his deathbed. He just received the death sentence. He's in hospice. And yet still in his dire condition, um, his heart remains hardened and unchanged towards God. In the song, uh, this man in the hospital bed, this, this is what he says. As the hour draws near to take my last breath, I'm not quite sure how much time I have left. I'm walking the path of all the others who died, but I don't care what awaits me on the other side. I'm in a hospital bed, blood clots in my head, body chock full of meds, and I got to be fed through a tube. I'm comatose. Wet food, aromas gross. Pursued lewd moods as a refuge, overdose. I'm found in this predicament, surrounded by significant. Others, my mother, the room's crowded, and I'm listening. I hear a person's voice that I don't recognize praying for me. It must be a reverend and his lies. Nurse checking my eyes. She's not getting any replies. If she knew I heard everything, she'd be surprised. My family's upsetting me with their cries. What are they crying for? If I could speak, I, can ask, I would ask the reverend, what is he lying for? He said something about believing in the Lord. That's ridiculous. We all know that Jesus was a fraud. Atheism is logical. Blind faith is comical. Seven-day creation and Satan are mythological. The Bible is full of statements made by men who were shaken, too scared to face the end. The reverend said, don't be hostile to the gospel. Choose it but the only gospel that I like is gospel music. He said, if I understood him, take my finger and wiggle one, but if I could, I would have given him the middle one because he's wrong and I'm ready to go. Man, I'm strong, I am ready to go. If it's on, then it's on, bring it on, I'm ready to go. I'll crash through the gates in minutes or seconds. His antics are faith, fake, so I'm dissing the reverend. My last action, shaking my fist at the heavens. This is what Pharaoh is doing in this text. He's shaking his fist at the heavens. While God in mercy, with free grace, through a relentless pursuit, time after time after time after time, is saying, I want to save you and spare your life. Plague number one. Pharaoh, turn to me and I'll be merciful to you. Plague number two, Pharaoh, turn to me, I'll be merciful to you. Plague number three, Pharaoh, turn to me, I'll be merciful to you. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, leading to this last tenth death plague. Pharaoh, the end is now finally here. I'm telling you, it's coming soon your way. I will spare your life and be merciful to you if you just turn to me. And Pharaoh, in light of 
The holy, perfect God hardens his heart and chooses his own way. He is the captain of his own ship and the master of his own soul. And if you look there in verse 10, what the text says is that the Lord hardened his heart. What does that mean? Well, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that if we continuously or relentlessly make way with our sin, rejecting God, that there will come a time where he will hand us over to the way that we actually truly long to go anyway. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes about the wrath of God through abandonment, where he talks about people who are aware of the truth, but, but suppress the truth. So to live for themselves and continue on suppressing the truth, or the truth continues to come towards them so that they can be the captain of their own ship and master of their own souls. And part of God's judgment is to hand them over to their desires. You see, the proverb was right when it said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. There, what we need to know is that God's mercy is presented to us in the gospel. We talk about it every week. But there is only so much patience and forbearance that God is willing to extend until that grace extension actually expires. One day, the grace offer will be no more. The Bible says we're living in the last days. It also says that Jesus is God's last word of grace and warning. That's the point of the parable, that, parable that, that Jesus says and speaks on and teaches through Matthew chapter 21. Do you remember it? He gives the parable of the tenants who are in the master's house. And the master sends his servants, his messengers representing the prophets, over and over again to the tenants saying the master's returning, get ready. And they reject every single servant and prophet until the master finally sends his son And what did the the tenants do to the messenger's son? They killed him. Who's the master? God the Father. Who's the son? Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the world to give warning. And the Jews of the time rejected him and said he is no savior at all. Crucify him. That's who Jesus was talking to in that parable. Those who had religious hearts and thought they didn't need God and thought they could make it on their own, they rejected Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And yet, every week, we come to hear this message of grace and still, and I can't even beg, I dare not even elevate my voice. I'm just going to let the Spirit speak. And still, some of you, Keep your hard heart towards God. Did you know that it's possible to do religious things on the outside and look religious, but didn't really still have a cold heart towards God? (laughs) Hear that. Please. Hear that. Some of you are just playing games. I don't know why you're playing pretend. You're not fooling anyone. You're not fooling anyone. To 
today is the day of salvation. God wants to be merciful to you. Will you soften your heart? He wants to forgive you, love you, call you. Him who has ears, let him hear. How do we know if we have a hard heart against God? The answer, if we think that we can live life on our own. Further, if we want to live life on our own. Further, if we long for ourselves and our own lives more than God. Don't harden your hearts any longer. Take heed to the gospel message. The Lord is at hand. And what we need to know from this passage is that Christians are not exempt from this fallen condition fact of a hardened heart. How does a Christian fall into the temptation of having a hardened heart? Through unconfessed sin. What ends up happening is through unrepentant sin, Satan uses these things to callous our hearts in such a way that we grow cold to God, desensitizing our conscience, feeling as if it's okay to go through the motions and actually not be close to God at all from the inside. And before we know it, we're just so far away. God is drawing close, and he just wants to be merciful. So what's the antidote uh, for a hardened heart? Um, for you, in the realest way that you can, get before God, humble yourself, and say, Lord, search my heart. I want to be known. And if there's any way inside of me that has been hardened towards holiness, or being affectionate in response to your love. Remove that from me. I don't want to have a hard heart any longer. God loves prayers like that. That father who had the sixth son in Mark chapter 9 confessed his doubt to Jesus. And did Jesus condemn him? No. He did the miracle and healed his son to prove his love. You see, repentance is not just an intense feeling or emotion, but it is a way and practice of life. And I talk about that in a little bit. But the question that we're finishing with in point number one is, will we continue on in our rebellion? Or will we, with humility, submit to the humble God who gives Christ his son? It's up to us. That was point number one, our rebellion. Moving now a little bit deeper into the text, I'd like to show you the second point, which is uh, God's judgment. There was this uh, study uh, conducted and published back in 2012, which I think is super revealing. Uh, the study was done um, in order to understand the correlation between those who are religious and those who fear death. It was a super interesting study. The study was actually conducted in three separate countries, um, <clears throat> Malaysia, Turkey, and the U.S. And overall, what the study uh, discovered was that in all three countries, um, things were basically the same. The researchers found that those who tended to be most religious were also those who most feared death. Uh, Muslims were amongst the study, uh, amongst the study were those who um, expressed the greatest fear of death more than any other religion. But uh, from this study came a new theory, which was called death apprehension theory. 
And here's why I think the study is so appropriate for this text in Revealing. Um, because it goes on to show us how much religion or the idea of doing good tempts to, um, or tempts us to judge ourselves and our status as a, a means by which we can stand before God. I'm not sure if you know this, uh, but there is only one religion in the world whose doctrine of salvation is actually opposite to what I just said, and that is Christianity. In other words, if you study the world's major religions, what you'll find is that at the core of each doctrine, salvation always boils down what, um, to what man can do for God. But Christianity is good news because it opposes that and actually advocates for the opposite. Christianity fights for salvation and explains it in the way that shows it's only about what God has done for man. Salvation comes through what God has done for man, and it is through understanding the gospel found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where we can be freed to live a pious life without a heavy yoke or fear of death. But here's what we need to know about salvation. Salvation at first, as it was accomplished by Christ, was actually not free. What I mean by that was that Christ actually had to pay the penalty for sin, that being death, in order to extend to sinners free grace and mercy. And so what I want for us to see from this story is that there's really, um, there's, it's neither Israelites or the Egyptians who are immune from death in this story. Israelites and the Egyptians are not immune from death in the story. In chapter 12, after God spoke of the angel of death coming with judgment, and that night he did, uh, death visited the homes of even the Israelites. How so? Chapter, chapter 12, verse 3. And God said to Moses, tell all the congregation of Israel that every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses and a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Verse 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. In other words, what I want for us to recognize is that something had to die in order for the Israelites not to. What does this mean or show us? Well, most simply put, it means and shows us that God's people, Israelites, still had sin and there still had to be a consequence met for their sin, the death of the perfect lamb. One commentator named Desmond Alexander said this, the one thing we have to realize about this final death plague is that its threat hung over the Israelites as much as it did over the Egyptians. Death was not simply a punishment inflicted on the Egyptians. There's deeper significance taking place concerning the Passover here. And the implication of what they do relate back to the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were expelled from God's presence and given a death sentence after their sin. The Passover ritual addresses the consequence of human rebellion against God. And then Romans chapter 5 goes on further to say this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through that one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the thing that makes 
the religion which advocates for mankind's efforts to a way to God frightening. Because as sinners, the natural question that we want to ask ourselves is, have we been good enough for God? But that's not the question, at least from Christian doctrine, because Christian doctrine says that man is depraved in their nature. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, St. Paul says, no one's righteous, no one seeks for God, no one understands, all have turned aside, no one does good. So what I said at the beginning of the sermon that I intended to show us is that we need God without hitting rock bottom, and actually our rock bottom is our depraved nature. No human being through works of the law may be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin and the wages of sin are death. How then can God be good if he puts people to death? Well, because without God punishing evil, he would not be a just God, and that would make him morally imperfect. But the good news of the scriptures of this Christian God, of God the Father through Christ the Son, is that God is not only just, but also is the justifier, and through <laughs> the atoning sacrifice of Christ extends free mercy. You see, see, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one sins and the other doesn't. The difference is that one knows they sin and they hate it, and the other person is complacent with it. Um, simply put, a real authentic Christian feels the weight of their sin and cries out to God for, for him to save them. And the other person thinks they got it. Let me just remind you, dear Christian who's struggling, if you feel the weight of your sin struggle, praise God, that is fruit of the Spirit inside of you. Nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Repentance, I said this before, is not an intense feeling or an emotion, or at least it doesn't stay that way. It actually turns into a lifestyle of obedience. That night, as the instructions came for the Passover meal and to kill a lamb, there were significant details of this Passover ritual. And it is through the Israelites' obedience, through the instructions of those meal, and by faith slaying the lamb, and then through obedience and action of faith, placing the blood on the doorpost. That's where their faith was authenticated. In other words, obedience is a marker of true, genuine faith. And so this is a way for us to apply the story. The gospel call to us is not merely that we would believe, but that we would express our faith through obedience. I'm not asking you to live a perfect life. It's impossible. I'm not asking you not to sin, although that be good. That's impossible. I'm asking you that in light of this gospel call to believe, if you would consider the track record of obedience in your life and see if you actually believe in the blood of the Lamb. Salvation's free. It frees us. There's power in the blood. Israel had to take the blood and put it over their doorposts. Works-driven theology lead to fear and uncertainty, but knowing and believing in the gospel of grace leads to a free, light yoke of piety and proof of faith in a believer's life. I'd like to close 
And this last point, moving to point number three, and I'm really encouraged to show you finally the great message of hope that is found in this text through Christ the Lamb. If you, um, if you take time to humanize the story and think about the type of conversations that would have happened in an Israelite household before the, 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 the plague came of death, um, it would probably ha- would have been frightening. I mean, think about the fact that the God of heaven was about to leave heaven and come to earth and walk through the alleyways of Egypt. After he had given immense instruction to the Israelites to prepare this dinner and, and slay this lamb, the Israelite husband saying to the wife, babe, did we do enough? Did we put enough blood on the doorpost where Yahweh could see? Did we miss any steps in the ritual or, or, or meal? Did we leave any leftovers? Did we burn it all? Was I wearing the right garments? Did we pick the lamb who was unblemished? Are you sure there wasn't any other blemish, uh, unblemished lamb that is better than the one we picked? What if he comes and we didn't do good enough? But the good news of the story arrives at the end of chapter 12. And as God leaves heaven, comes to earth, he does everything that he says he was going to do and judgment or wrath does not come close to touching his people because of their faith in the blood of the lamb. It preserved them and pardoned them from their sin. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, blemishes produces cursed and perfection produced blessing. And the greatest news of, in the world comes to us as we journey on through this text into the New Testament and see the Son of God. The last great prophet for Israel, John the Baptist himself, arrives on the scene preaching a gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And do you want to know the first words that come in his mouth as Christ walks down into the Jordan River? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The significance of Jesus being the son of God is here. Here's the significance of his sinless life. Jesus comes from heaven to reveal the love and character found in God, where God with humility chooses to leave heaven and live a perfect life for his rebellious creation in the rebellion. Then willingly lays down his life as a blood sacrifice so their lives could be pardoned and redeemed. Christ is how we're reconciled to God. By his blood, we have been washed clean, whiter than snow. I'd like to read to you the greatest gospel, I think, of this entire sermon. It's a big portion of text, but please receive it by faith. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
For the judgment of following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ, the lamb slain. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who believe in Christ have been, by the Spirit, been united to the Lamb who was slain. God the Father was pleased to crush his Son so as to reconcile us to himself. He delights in showing mercy. Jesus' blood is how we've been made holy and consecrated. Jesus' blood, by his blood, we have been brought near We no longer have to judge ourselves to see if we've been performing or good enough for God. For God, our Savior, has become our salvation and has performed for us. This produces the greatest confidence. This produces the greatest hope. Our God did not just die, but he rose from the dead, stamping on its head. And I like to say that the greatest gift from this passage is not just freedom from slavery or a passing over death, but God himself. This is why God saved Israel. So to call them out of not being in relationship with him into being, relation, into being, having relationship with him so they would enjoy him as the great treasure of salvation because our God is salvation. And so I'm just asking you, if you want God, if you don't, I pray that God would change your heart. If you do, all you need by faith is to believe in the lamb who was slain and God will deal with you graciously. I'll close with this. For the past month, um, I've had probably three or four families who've experienced death in my life. And uh, all of those families have dealt with death death differently. Um, Some of those families were Christian and some of them were non-Christian. I got to talk to a few of them. All of them deal with it somewhat of the same in that they all cried and felt the pain. That's always true of death. Mourning and crying is always appropriate. But last week after the service, I had a conversation with a woman outside in the parking lot. And although she had tears in her eyes, she also had a small smile. And that smile was a glimmer of hope because of the Savior who she believed in who conquered death. You see, Christians do not mourn like the rest of the world. Christians, as they face death, can sing hymns like Paul did and say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, I pray that through the blood of the Lamb, you would experience victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your humility. 
We're not perfect, but you are, and you gave us your perfection freely, and we embrace it. Thank you for the inward fight. Thank you that even as we fight sin, we don't have to focus on ourselves, for there is one who defeats sin. All we got to do is rest in him, and so invite us this morning by grace to rest. We are your people. Please, I ask you just to slow down for, in your coming, just so you can be merciful and save more people and gather them to yourself so if Christ can be greater worshipped. But if you cannot wait, Lord, it would be a great pleasure for you to return and take us home to glory. So take us home, Lord, and thank you for your church. Bless us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen.